Welcome to Grow the Pie, the podcast where we ask the tough questions for responsible business. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School. And I'm with Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. So, uh, Alex, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be back. So this podcast is marking the launch of the paperback version of your book, Grow the Pie. So um, congratulations for that. And in case we have listeners who are tuning in to an episode of this Grow the Pie series for the first time, can you explain in a nutshell what the book is about? Certainly. So the book is about the business and financial case for responsible business, for why businesses should serve wider society rather than just focusing on short-term profit. So we often hear about the moral and ethical case for responsible business, that businesses do have a duty to serve wider society. And certainly morals and ethics are really important. But I think unless there's a clear business and commercial case, then responsibility will always be second order, at least in the minds of some executives or investors. And what I wanted to stress was that this is something which is absolutely commercially important. It's not something which is ancillary to the business or at the expense of the business, but supportive of it. And so what is the pie metaphor? The pie is the value that a company creates for wider society. And often approaches to business will assume a fixed pie. And so that is the case, then the only way that you can increase the pie to shareholders, i.e. profits, is by reducing the pie that's taken up by society. And so that's why there are some business leaders who indeed try to exploit or extract as much as possible from society. But why the book is called Grow the Pie is that if you are creating value to stakeholders, what you're actually doing is not donating parts of the pie, you're expanding parts of the pie. And therefore, even though society benefits profits also go up. So that's the business and commercial case that I was alluding to. Okay, that's great. And we'll get into to some more of those aspects during this discussion. Uh, but I'd first like to get your reflections on having toured the world, I mean, at least virtually, talking to businesses, investors, academics, and policymakers, because your book came out right at the start of the pandemic in early 2020. What struck you most about the reaction you've received? I was really grateful for the reaction that it's received, in particular, how it was something that mainstream investors and executives were really latching onto. So it wasn't just something that was preaching to the converted, where people who were already in the CSR or SIO movement were excited about, but mainstream organisations. So in particular, among companies, there were many financial organisations or law firms and so on, who you might think, if you believe the caricature, are all about maximising profit rather than and purpose, but they absolutely view purpose as being really important. And also it's financial institutions in terms of investors and asset managers, including some hedge funds and private equity, which were really latching onto those ideas. So there were some investors who told me they'd bought the book for their entire investment team, were having meetings on how to implement it in their investment strategy, and were also sending the book to some portfolio companies they were investing in and asking the managers to tell them how they would implement the principles of the book or explain to them why they were choosing not to do that. And that's really important because you often see the caricature that some enlightened leader cares about responsibility, but these pesky short-term oriented investors don't. However, there was a lot of support from the investment and financial community more generally about the principles of the book. 
And I do think it's based on the evidence behind it, which suggests that there is not just a moral and ethical case for responsibility, but a business and financial case as well. And I, I expect, I mean, just from my having read the book myself, obviously, I mean, I think that business people will have found the balance in it attractive. Say you neither claim for the universal benefits of responsible business, nor do you say that it's always a, a waste of money. So I think that evidence-based approach is is very powerful. And um, I, I mentioned at the start of the podcast that the paperback version of your book is just out, but it's much more than just a different format for the same material. Instead, you've updated it quite significantly. Uh, why did you do that? Yeah, that's awesome because it's pretty unusual to update a book, particularly only one and a half years after the first publication. Right After slaving away for two years at writing a book, you think, well, I should be able to just enjoy and, and relax rather than having to sort of write another version. So, so why did I choose to um, update it for the paperback? There are three things that I wanted to bring out. So first, although it's not the only thing, as you highlighted, was the pandemic. So when the book came out, really badly timed, it was just when the pandemic was breaking out, people thought, well, responsibility would become a thing of the past. Right? In a pandemic, you have to focus on survival, focus on profits, purpose is a luxury. Yet we've seen a number of companies, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, which were really serving society in the pandemic and thinking of great ways to use their comparative advantage to come up against this new, really global challenge. So that's the first thing, to highlight how responsibility is realistic and achievable, even in tough times like a pandemic, but in general in recessionary times as well. Number two was that there was some really great new research coming out. So this is now a big area of academic research. It's really, really fruitful and, and exciting. And there was research on areas in which the initial hardback was quite silent. So this is on how purpose works in private firms. It's also on how it works in different asset classes. So I focus mainly on equities, but there's now some research in bonds. And there's also some research which is looking at some of the principles of the book. So one thing I have is the principle of of comparative advantage, that you should focus on the areas in which you have expertise. But there was research looking at what happens if that is not satisfied. So if companies are doing things like charitable donations, which in fact might not actually be linked to their expertise. And the third was some new practitioner insight uh, on how to put purpose into practice. So I was really grateful, as you mentioned, Tom, for all of the invitations from investors and executives to present the paper. And through the Q&A, I got some challenges. So, so there were some pushbacks as to, well, how does this actually work in practice? Some people suggested, oh, I would have loved to hear about this, but it wasn't in the book. And I also learned from them what they were doing to implement responsibility. And so what I wanted to do was to share those new insights and add that to the book. Okay, so I mean, you've highlighted quite a few areas there where there are substantial changes. And for people who've read the hardback, I, I think I can certainly say that it's, it's also worth taking a look at the paperback version. And I think now we'll, we'll talk about some of the areas that you've developed in the new edition, but also some you covered in the original book, but where the context today is particularly relevant. And you just mentioned, actually, that one of the things that you've done is in your section on how enterprises can make purpose real, you've expanded the example set away from large companies to startups and private companies. How do you see the relevance of purpose in these types of businesses? And, and how are the challenges of implementing purpose different from public companies? 
Yeah, I think there's three reasons why it's relevant, even more relevant potentially in, in startups and private firms. I think the first is to attract people to an organization, right? to attract the best talent. Often people are joining startups, not for tangible reasons, such as say the salary or the clear promotion prospects, but because they're really aligned to the mission. And I see this with, with many of my own MBA students who might have some offers from Volge Brackets, investment banks or consultancies or professional service firms, but you to go into startup. And why might they do that? I think the purpose of the organization is absolutely a, a major driver. You similarly don't have particular fixed working hours. This is something where if you're really aligned with the mission, you are going to go above and beyond and, and do a lot of additional work in order to make it a success. So I think it's useful as a motivator and as a recruiter. Number two is it's useful as a decision-making tool. So one of the things I stress in the book is that the difference between an instrumental approach to decision-making and an intrinsic approach. So what do I mean by this? The instrumental way of making decisions is before making an investment, try to calculate the benefits of that investment. So when you build a factory, how many widgets can that factory produce? That's particularly difficult for purpose type investments, let's say investing in employees or investing in reducing your carbon footprint. And with startup companies, that's typically the main way to make decisions in that it's really difficult to forecast things such as sales and profits because you don't have a track record. Often the product that you're selling might be quite new. So within startups, they're actually pretty comfortable making decisions on intrinsic reasons. So one of the hang-ups that maybe established companies might have about having the principles intrinsic approach that I recommend is this is a 180 degree difference from the spreadsheet-based approach that they've had. But that's not something which is so much of a challenge for startups because they're used to to making decisions on an instrumental basis. And I think the third and final difference is that with a large public company, you have a lot of investors and the investors might be quite dispersed. They might not be looking at things beyond short-term profit. Whereas if you're a startup, you might have a concentrated venture capital investor, which really is getting into the weeds of the business. And so that might also help in terms of being able to take the long-term perspective, pursue these intangible dimensions, which are really critical for putting purpose into practice. I think that comment that you you make about private ownership is is very interesting because you know, particularly given you know, the reputation of private equity, the assumption often is that private markets are um, you know a very short term profit focus. But actually, given the research on the role of purpose in creating long term value, I mean, I'm guessing there's sort of evidence that in some contexts these markets are actually potentially more purposeful than public markets. Is that true to say? Absolutely. And this is actually one of the new sections in the book. So even the hardback, there was a lot of evidence on investor engagement, but mainly in publicly traded companies. So there was some work on index funds and hedge funds engaging, but nothing really on, on private firms. And there was a stream of new research which came out. Some of it is new and some of it, I have to admit, was already out there prior to me writing the book, but I just wasn't aware of it. And so that was brought to my attention. And let me just give you a flavor of one of those papers. So what they looked at was what happened when a private equity company takes over a business in terms of IT investment. So that's something that you think should be cut, right? If you're asset stripping, you should cut such investment. But what people found was that there was a 
great increase in that IT investment. And then what were the consequences of that? What the research were able to do was to get the career history of the employees from a large uh, US career networking website, where they looked at what actually happened to these employees, even if they left the company. And they found that these companies, particularly if they had IT related jobs, were able to move to newer and better companies. So what we don't know is why they left. Were they forced out or did they voluntarily leave? And often the view is that, well, private equity, they might shed workers. But even in the worst case in which these were involuntary departures, what the researchers found was that they were able to find new and better paying jobs um, quite quickly. Uh, and that also suggests that the investment which PE is encouraging leads to these really positive spillovers in terms of human capital. Well, and hopefully there are more researchers kind of looking at some of these issues around private markets, because I think it's a poorly understood area in, in general. And I'd also like to just come back to your comment around startups, because you had an interesting case study in the book around an online glasses vendor. And, and what was interesting to me about that, perhaps you could say a bit about it, was that it showed this point that often in a startup situation, it's very difficult to do the sort of spreadsheet calculation about what the right decision to make is. And therefore, you know, purpose becomes an even more important guide of behavior. But perhaps you could talk about that case a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a startup at Warby Parker. So this is an eyeglasses company, which recently IPO'd to much success in the US. And actually, it's a startup I, I know as reasonably well, because um, these were some Wharton MBA students who I used to teach. In fact, a couple of them played on the ice hockey team that I used to captain. And so what's the story behind why they started this eyeglasses firm? One of the co-CEOs, Dave Gilboa, he lost his glasses during a backpacking trip. And he wanted to buy new ones, obviously, so that he hadn't had to squint at his lectures. But the cost of them was nearly $300. And this just seemed crazy for a pair of glasses. And so what they wanted to do was to disrupt the eyeglasses industry. They said that we're going to offer eyewear at a revolutionary price. And you might think, well, what's revolutionary? If the average price is just below 300 maybe you can offer 250 maybe even 200 but they said, no, let's offer $95. That is a revolutionary price when most of the glasses were at the high 200s. And how do you go to that? Yeah, you could try a spreadsheet calculation of if we do this, how many new customers might we be able to bring in? And if they spread the word, then maybe we might be able to increase prices later. But it's really difficult to try to figure out, are you going to be able to do this and how much will you be able to increase prices later? So they said, no, let's just be revolutionary. And revolutionary would mean offering something which is two digit when most people won't be below even not three, just three digits, but 300. And you might think, well, why don't we offer $99? But 99 just gives the impression of just trying to squeeze as much as possible within the limits of being in two digits. So it's a bit like ESG regulation. Even if you regulate ESG, people might just go right to the end of the line. So if they said, no, let's let's go 95. That is um, both revolutionary and not squeezing as much as possible. The other thing that they did is they said, well, everybody has the right to see. Therefore, for every pair of glasses that we sell, we're going to give one to a developing country. And again, you might think, oh, was this strategic? Is this something where they could have calculated that we're going to benefit from the image that this is going to give us? But again, I think that's something which is really difficult to calculate. If instead, let's just do it because we think it's the right thing to do. 
because it's our comparative advantage, right? Rather than giving to charity, here is something where because our expertise is making glasses, we can give glasses which make a huge difference. They give the gift of sight to somebody in a developing country at relatively low cost to ourselves. Let's try to do this. And this is a company which has become extremely successful. Obviously, there are many reasons for it, but I do believe that some of the reasons are the strength of purpose, which led them to make seemingly crazy decisions, even when they were a startup. I thought that was a lovely example, actually, of how in certain situations, being guided by your purpose can bring clarity and rationale to decisions that you could get lost in spurious accuracy on a on a spreadsheet. So thanks for sharing that one. So moving on to another kind of topic now, one of the bits of your first book that I really liked and thought was a really kind of practical aid to business people was your set of principles for decision making for purposeful business. So you know, how do you decide which actions to undertake if it's not clearly indicated by financial shareholder value maximization. And, and you had your three principles that um, firstly, multiplication, so the social benefit of the action should clearly exceed the cost, comparative advantage, so you should be better placed than other companies to uh, provide that social benefit. And then finally, materiality. And it's the last of these that I'd really like to probe you on a bit, because I think it's particularly relevant to the debate about double and dynamic materiality, saliency and so on, which is really, I think, built up ahead of steam during the, the, the pandemic. So in your book, you talk about two types of materiality. You talk about business materiality and intrinsic materiality. Can you just say what you mean by these and um, perhaps give an example? Absolutely. So let me start with business materiality. So what this talks about is there's various stakeholders that a company might wish to serve. So customers, the environment, employees and so forth. And materiality from a business context is which are the stakeholders that are really most important to your business. And more finally, what are the particular stakeholder issues that you really care about because they will affect your business's success. So as an example, if you're a retail bank, something that really matters is transparency and selling practices and product labeling and so forth. You don't want to be in, say, a Wells Fargo fake bank account scandal or in the mis-selling of payment protection insurance. Why? Because transparency and trust, particularly for something like a financial product, which is complex, is something which is really going to affect the future success of your business. However, what is intrinsic materiality? This might be that you consider an issue material important to you just for intrinsic reasons, not because it's going to affect your business's success, but perhaps because the leaders of the business and the employees of the business think that this is a stakeholder that you should care about. So one example of that might be Pressemanger, which is the sandwich chain. So they consider homeless to be a material part of society. And this is why they do things such as distribute leftover food at the end of the day to the homeless, even though that distribution does cost them some money. Now, the business materiality of the homeless is probably not that high because they're probably not going to buy many of the future products for them. But if they think, well, we just have a responsibility to uh, the homeless, particularly since one of their challenges is hunger, and we are a business which is about food and nutrition, this is a stakeholder that we believe that we have a responsibility to. And so what this means is that when you choose which stakeholders to prioritize, either choose the ones that are financially important for your business, which is business materiality, 
or the ones that you intrinsically care about. And you might think, well, isn't that something people would do anyway, right? You should either do it for one reason or the other. Automatically, you're going to do it because it's sensible or because you care about it. But in fact, no, often companies feel the need to respond to every single stakeholder issue. When there is an issue in the news, we need to speak out about it, perhaps donate to a charity associated with it. When in fact, when it's not something critical to the business and not something which most people in the organization are aligned with, then actually this isn't a major issue to you. Perhaps you should focus your scarce resources on the ones that have either business or intrinsic materiality. Is this connected at all to the research that you highlighted and came out fairly recently around charitable contributions or, or, or is that a different issue? Yeah, it's somewhat related. So the charitable contributions one is, is related not only to materiality, which is the importance of the stakeholder to you, but also comparative advantage, which is your impact on that stakeholder. So often people think about this as double materiality, your impact on the stakeholder and the stakeholder's impact on you. I just use slightly different terminology just to make it a bit clearer. So your impact on the stakeholder is your comparative advantage, and that stakeholder's impact on you is materiality. So why am I saying that charitable donations are not something about which a company has comparative advantage? Because if your expertise is, let's say, making clothes, then that's what you should be focusing on and doing so in the most ethical way and sustainable way, not so much knowing what charitable causes are most worthy. And so there is some new research which came out which looked at what happens to a company's value when the CEO chooses to donate to charities. And what they find is this is bad for long-term shareholder value. And then you might think, well, then why do CEOs do this to begin with? Then are there benefits maybe to stakeholders, not to shareholders? Well, there are, but the only stakeholder who seems to benefit is the CEO himself or herself. And how do they benefit? Well, what they find is that when you give to a charity which is affiliated with the board of directors, then you find that the CEO gets paid more and the CEO is less likely to be uh, fired upon poor performance. And they do this really nice test, which is they look at what happens if the board members are on the remuneration committee versus if they're not, and they find that the effects on pay are only true when the board members affiliated with the charity are on the Remco, which makes sense. So that is an example of CSR or responsibility sometimes being an agency problem. You can do excessive responsibility. And that's linked to one of your comments at the start, Tom, is that I try to be balanced in the book. I try to say, yeah, responsibility is really important, but that's not to say that every single dimension of responsibility is always going to be adding value. Right. And I mean, in those cases, uh, the, the, the responsibility action is directed towards factors other than, you know, the business strategy or anything really to do with the business. And so that kind of leads me on to the question about how does this discussion we've just had in your concepts of comparative advantage, business materiality and intrinsic materiality, how does that relate to the current debate about the extent to which investors and companies should concern themselves with social issues, for example, as represented by the Sustainable Development Goals? Because as you said, you know, companies are getting sort of deluged with demands to respond to all manner of social issues. Well, I think the Sustainable Development Goals are, are really useful and a very valuable framework for what we need to achieve 
as a society to lead to a much more fair and inclusive economy. However, these are issues that should be achieved at a society level. They needn't be achieved at each individual company level. So let's say you're an investor with a reasonably broad portfolio. It may well be that across your whole portfolio, your companies are contributing to all 17 of these SDGs. But does this require every single company to contribute to all of them? I would say no. So there will be certain companies which are particularly strong at some, let's say number two, zero hunger. If you're holding, say, Danone or another food company, that's really important. But there are others which might be contributing more to other SDGs. And I think the responsibility of a company is not to think that you need to solve every single one of the world's problems, but to focus on the problems that either, number one, you have a comparative advantage in solving, so you have expertise in addressing them, or number two, they are most material for your business. And why do those things really matter? Because it means that whatever investment you make in society, you're going to achieve a high bang for buck. You're going to achieve a high social value for your investment. And in turn, that social value will lead to financial value, creating a virtuous circle and enabling you to keep making more investments in society for many, many years down the line. Okay, thanks for that. I I mean, I think that shows how the principles can really help investors and companies just navigate a path through these kind of complex and conflicting demands. And talking of investors, the chapter that's probably changed the most is the one on the role of investors. So let's talk about some of the developments there. So first of all, you expand quite a lot more in the paperback version of your book on how asset managers and asset owners can hold each other and the companies they invest in accountable for purpose. And there are some useful frameworks of questions there that link to your principles on purposeful action that we've just been discussing. And we can't go through all the questions, but can you explain how you've organised your thinking and perhaps give one or two examples? Yeah, absolutely. And and let me explain why I chose to really update that chapter. Is we often think about the relationship between investors and companies and how investors can hold companies to account, how they can discern which companies are truly purposeful rather than just greenwashing. And the hardback had some questions which are thanks to the blueprint for better business, explaining how investors can find out which companies are truly purposeful. However, investors are not just one monolithic entity. Investors consist of two main parts of the chain. You have asset managers, such as, say, Fidelity, and asset owners, such as pension funds. And the same concern of perhaps greenwashing, identifying who is truly purposeful, is something that asset owners face when they're trying to choose who are the asset managers. So what I did, with the help of many asset managers and asset owners over the past 18 months, was to come up with a list of questions that asset owners can use to find out which asset managers are truly responsible. And I'll only just suggest a few because of time. So one is, well, what is the extent to which you practice the principles that you expect companies to do yourself internally? And why is that interesting? An asset management firm is a company in and of itself. And if indeed a asset manager is saying to its companies, oh, try to ensure that you have long-term pay for your CEO, that you're investing in your human capital, that's something, well, they should be doing themselves. Number one, because it's a good thing. And number two, because their credibility to hold companies to account for that is probably going to be much more limited if they're not really practicing it. 
A second thing, one of the questions is, well, what is your stewardship policy? And importantly, what is distinctive about it? And why is that so important? Right, when you're evaluating companies, it's pretty clear to see what's distinctive. Different companies are in different industries, so these different purposes might be quite distinctive. But to evaluate asset managers, all of them are in the same business of generating long-term returns. So here to highlight what's distinctive about how you go about that is, I think, really key. And just to give you an example, if you look at, say, a stock note from Stuart investors, they put a huge amount of emphasis on evaluating management. We often think about ESG, about having metrics and scoring systems and looking at data, whereas something qualitative and potentially squishy about evaluating management, that doesn't really get as much attention because people think, well, this is qualitative and subjective, where Stuart thinks, well, if a company is to be truly responsible, it starts at the top. Let's try to find ways of evaluating on a qualitative basis the commitment of management towards responsibility. And the third and final question is, how did stewardship actually change your investment decisions? So if stewardship is to have any meaning, it should lead you to making some decisions that you would not have made had your objectives been purely financial. So were there cases in which you avoided investing in a company? even though from a long-term financial perspective, they would have been attractive. Or on the flip side, when you did invest in a company or you retained a company, even though on a purely financial basis, you might have done that otherwise. What I think is really interesting about this section is it's certainly in my discussions about purpose. If you look at things through the lens of the sort of the recipient of a purpose statement, whether that's an asset manager looking at a company or an asset owner looking at an asset manager, you quite often find that they sort of shrug their shoulders a little bit. And part of the reason is that these statements you know, can be somewhat generic, can just appear to be lists of nice stuff that the company's doing. And I think what your questions do effectively in quite a simple format is try to focus on the 10% that's different and makes a difference and is distinctive rather than the 90% that's, that's sort of generic. So I think people who are trying to understand, well, how can we sift through all of the information we get about purpose into the stuff that really makes a difference. I think we'll find those questions really helpful. Thank you, Tom. And in, in particular, when I came up with the first set, I didn't put the distinctiveness in it. And it was really the feedback from investors who told me to put this in because they are the ones which, as you say, are looking at loads of these things and they know far more than me how generic they might be. So it was distinctiveness that they really encouraged me to incorporate into those questions. So you make an interesting point as well in that same chapter about procurement and about customers in effect being a type of investor in their suppliers business. And they should think about this in terms of procurement policy. Can you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely, Tom. And, and this I also have to thank companies for because there were companies that read the book and they said, well, can you think about how you can apply these ideas to procurement? And I hadn't thought about it before, but through working with those companies, I felt I had sufficiently new material for the paperback. And so when you look at responsibility within a company, often they think about, well, what CSR activities can we do in terms of, let's say, charitable donations? But if you think of the average CSR spend in the FTSE 100, it's £10 million, whereas the average procurement budget is £4 billion. So the outsized impact that you can have through responsible procurement is much higher through CSR. 
And so you're right, Tom, that in the book, I draw a large analogy between responsible procurement, how to evaluate which suppliers to procure from, and responsible investing, which is how to evaluate which companies to invest in. And when we think about responsible investment, as we've discussed in our prior podcast, actually divesting from a company might not be the most powerful thing to do to hold it to account, because you can only divest if somebody else buys. But with procurement, if you stop buying from a supplier, it might be that nobody else takes your place. So the whole idea of boycotting is actually much, much stronger. And then on the flip side, if you are to buy from a supplier, that is some new capital which that supplier gets, which they might not have done otherwise. So what I want to do was to first stress how critical responsible procurement is in terms of embedding purpose in the ecosystem and how companies should pay a lot of attention to what they're doing in terms of their sourcing. So the number one is highlight the importance and the power. And the number two is to look at the frameworks for evaluating suppliers. And while I don't want to push the analogy too far, I do think there's a lot of analogues between um, choosing investments and choosing suppliers, which are not often looked at. So we have got great frameworks out there for evaluating investment opportunities. And a lot of that we can start to apply for responsible procurement where the frameworks are a bit more underdeveloped. So many of those frameworks look at things like do no harm. Right. Do you cross a red line in terms of modern slavery or gender diversity or things like that? And that is clearly important. Businesses should do no harm. But I don't think there's as much of the actively good do good aspect of responsibility. How much value is this company actively creating? So just like responsible investment has moved away from just excluding based on red lines to integration based on positive as well as negative aspects, I think similarly responsible procurement can move from pure exclusion to this integration type framework. I think that's a really, really interesting observation. And the next kind of third new area that you, that you cover in this chapter is data sources, ESG data sources. And you know, this is a really topical area and a growth area. And I know that not only have there been developments in the market, but there's also been developments in research since you wrote the first version of the book. And a common complaint is that data providers give different ratings and that lack of consistency is viewed as a problem. You have a more nuanced view of this. So tell us how and why the ratings are different and how we should think about that. Absolutely. So one thing that I did after finishing the hardback is on the website growthepie.net is that if there was a new paper which came out with implications for responsible business, I would just write about it and blog about it. I never had this idea of writing a new paperback version. I thought, well, let me just write about these new papers so that anybody interested in purpose can read about them. And my most, by far my most viewed article was this one on ESG ratings based on a recent academic paper where the title is aggregate confusion, the divergence of ESG ratings. And it's about precisely the issue that you suggest, Tom, is that people think about, yeah, we need to try to figure out who are the responsible companies. We want to add some concreteness to this rather nebulous area. So why don't we look at ESG ratings? And, and what are they? These are ratings or certifications that providers like MSCI, or Sustainalytics will issue to certify or to rate the ESG qualities of a particular company in the same way that Standard & Poor's and Moody's provide credit ratings for debt. 
But the embarrassing thing is that while credit ratings are very comparable across S&P and Moody's, there is significant divergence across different ESG rating providers. And so the common criticism is that, well, this means that ESG ratings are, are completely useless. And if even the professional ratings agencies, whose job it is it to rate these companies, they can't agree well, then there's no hope that we as investors can evaluate ESG. So let's just not bother. Let's just go back to evaluating companies based on financial performance. But what I argue in both the blog and then now the book is that that is not a correct way of interpreting this, is that these ratings should not agree with each other because evaluating ESG performance is necessarily subjective. And it's subjective for two ways. First, even if you agree that an issue is important, you might not know how to measure it. So let's say we're looking at um, gender diversity. Do you look at gender diversity in the boardroom, in the wider workforce, the gender pay gap, or so on? There's many different measures. And also, it's not clear, well, what are the issues that you care about to begin with and how much to weight them? So obviously, everybody will care about things like carbon emissions. But do you care about things like electromagnetic radiation or lobbying? Right. To some, lobbying could be corruption. To others, lobbying is actually using research and evidence to influence uh, regulation. So it's not clear. And different people will have different stances. So I think another word, another way of looking at this divergence is it's just diversity. It's diversity of opinion. We actually benefit from the fact that you have a plethora of different opinions on the ESG qualities of a company. That's much better than if everybody agreed. Just like with equity research, does the fact that Goldman Sachs says buy and Morgan Stanley says sell mean that these research reports are completely useless because they can't agree? Absolutely not. What you would do as an investor is you won't just automatically go on the buy or sell rating, you're going to read the reports, look at the grounds for the recommendation and see what you agree with. And I think that's exactly what we should do with ESG reports. What matters is not so much the headline rating, but the analysis that underpins it. And I think that a lot of the pushback is a bit unfair from investors who want to be a bit lazy and think, well, if there's one off the shelf rating that I can invest on the basis of without actually reading the underlying analysis, then that makes my job easier. But I don't think that's what you should do. You should read the underlying report and use that to influence your investment decision. And I suppose that kind of links to a point that, I mean, these data sources matter in part because they're used by time constrained asset managers and other stakeholders to judge companies on their ESG progress. But will this kind of metric-driven approach to ESG ever be sufficient? Certainly, as a finance professor, I understand the, the power of data. And, and we do want to use data when we can. Otherwise, this could be something which is nebulous, where you can't hold companies to account. But I also like to stress the limitations of the data, in that there are many aspects of responsibility that you can't actually measure. For example, with employees, you do care about things like turnover and wages and so on. But can you measure corporate culture or meaningful work or skills development? And why is this discussion relevant? I think there are too many emphases on trying to quantify ESG in some mechanical way 
and in particular tie pay to ESG metrics. And that's something I know that you and I have both worked on. In some cases, tying pay to ESG metrics might be relevant if there's a clear ESG issue, which is certainly dominant and measurable like carbon emissions. But for other aspects, if you are caring about things such as employee well-being, would you tie it to a metric such as pay ratios or turnover? I would guard against this because that will mean that the company will ignore many of the other relevant qualitative dimensions of ESG performance. So often the question I get is, how do you measure ESG performance as an investor? And my answer is, you can't measure it. You can assess it or you can evaluate it. And that evaluation certainly should be guided by some metrics when you have them, but it also needs to be guided by some qualitative assessment. Just like who do you choose to work for? Yes, you might quantitatively look at the pay and the benefits and the holiday entitlement, but hopefully your decision on who to work for will be far more than that. It will be on the purpose of the company, the camaraderie that you feel with the people that you've met and so forth. And I think that's the same for evaluating a business. So, Alex, as we get to the end of of this podcast, there is one more topic I'd like to cover, and it's frankly not possible to have a podcast on responsible business at the moment without, of course, talking about um, COVID-19. And as I mentioned at the beginning, your book came out just as a pandemic was breaking into public consciousness, and it's been an extraordinary period. And one where you've already mentioned the difference between pie growing and pie splitting actions has come into focus. Has the pandemic given you new insights on pie economics? Indeed has. And it's made me even more optimistic about how business can serve wider society. So we saw two types of positive responses from businesses. One were businesses which were splitting the pie in a much fairer way. So these were companies that were giving up parts of the pie to help wider society. So these might be companies where the executives were taking big pay cuts. They were continuing to pay their workers, even though the workers were furloughed. And they might also be donating some products or services to local communities. So Unilever gave out 100 million euros of food and sanitizer. Now, these are fantastic examples. And obviously, any company that does that should be widely praised. However, the limitations of viewing responsibility as just being about pie splitting is that not every company can split the pie. So what if you're not in a relevant industry like food and sanitizer, or what if you don't have 100 million euros lying around? And this is why it was great that we saw a number of companies that were serving society through growing the pie, through using their comparative advantage, their resources and expertise to solve society's problems. And the interesting about this is this did not necessarily cost you a lot of money. So let's take Chelsea Football Club. Right, So a football club doesn't really have resources that matter in a pandemic. Football tickets aren't going to really help cure coronavirus. But what they had in their hand was a hotel. And they decided to use that hotel to house NHS doctors and nurses after a day fighting on the front line. So they didn't have to trek all the way home when public transport was something where the risk of contagion was reasonably high. Another company is Mercedes. So they typically make Formula One engines, which aren't really useful in a pandemic. But what they did was they realized their expertise was precision engineering. And the same precision engineering expertise that you need to make a Formula One engine, they redeployed that to make continuous positive airway pressure machines. And those are breathing machines which are less invasive alternative to ventilators. 
again, this didn't really cost a huge amount of money because they already had the expertise. So it's rather a mindset shift to think about how can I use my resources and expertise to serve wider society rather than the main barrier being a financial constraint. And I think this is something that hopefully will stay in the forefront of executives' minds even after the pandemic subsides. Responsibility is not always about spending money, but to think creatively about how you can redeploy your resources to address the challenges of wider society. I think it's really worth emphasising a, a point that you made earlier on in this discussion, which was it was far from obvious at the start of the pandemic that this was going to be the outcome. I mean, I think with the benefit of hindsight, it seems really natural that, you know, there were many good examples of companies undertaking these type of pie growing actions. But as you mentioned earlier, you know, going into a very severe recession we could quite easily have reverted to the sort of cost-cutting, financially-oriented disciplines of the past. So I think the fact that we didn't as a whole as in the business world does indicate that, that, that some of these ideas that you're talking about are really taking root. Yeah, and, and there were a couple of companies that did try to do that. So I won't say every single company was acting virtuously, but the companies that did that, there was quickly a, a backlash. So yeah. Sports Direct is an example. And this was when the UK government was saying you should not go to work unless it's absolutely essential. And to them, essential might mean making food or medicines. But Sports Direct claimed, well, sports equipment is essential. Therefore, we're going to force our workers to keep coming to work. And certainly, I'm somebody who believes in the importance of, of fitness and health. But to claim that that was essential compared to all of the other things, I think is a bit far-fetched. There was quickly a backlash against Sports Direct. And again, this highlights how business and society are really intertwined, that actually serving society is not just good ethically, it's good business. If you don't, then there could be a backlash against you. Well, Alex, thanks for another great conversation. Thank you very much, Tom. And to remind listeners, you can get the book and access a whole load of great related resources at growthepie.net. In the meantime, do subscribe so that you can receive all the episodes in this podcast series and also find out more about insights from London Business School at www.london.edu forward slash think. Thank you for listening.